everyone, and welcome to another edition of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Trish, and I have a special guest host with me here today. We have Emily. Hey. hey okay. <laughs> We'll go with that. <laughs> Emily is our artist who did our logo and did a fantastic job. You were very patient with us. I don't know. Yeah, it was good. I don't yeah. know. No, you were very, you were very good because <laughs> we, you kept asking us questions like, what are you looking for? And you gave us all these different mock-ups and we're like, okay, this is, well, can you do this? Can you do that? And you were very patient and kind. And you're patient with me too, because I'm usually like, let's do some rainbows, guys. It'll like, be great. <laughs> I don't think rainbow skies in our... (laughs) Can you dip blood from rainbows? I guess you could. We could go there too. We could. That'd be a little freaky. But you did a great job. You were patient and you did it for free. Yeah, of course. Because our budget is zero. Hey, we're all all in this together. Right. All right. So we're going to get started. So as I mentioned before, Emily had certain criteria that I had to hit for this case. And I think I nailed it. Yes, there's no no kids, no breaking, entering in the middle of the night. Right. No mass killings. Yeah, I think hit or miss, depending on the kind. Okay. I just, I can't handle it. Right. I get too visual as I process this. So no trauma at this no, point. Okay, no, no, I'm good. okay. I didn't look up pictures of any of these people though, so. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, I think, I, I think that should be helpful. Yeah, that should be good. <laughs> All right. Okay, so we're going to get started. Our story takes place in Belfont, Pennsylvania, which is the county seat in Center County which is, like it says, it's in the center of our state, practically. It's next-door neighbors to Penn State Universities, whose first game is today. I don't have my jersey on yet. Are you a Penn Stater? I didn't go. I lived near Penn State. Okay. I actually lived right over the hill from Beaver Stadium growing oh, up. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, so big Penn State fans. Okay. But I do love the tailgating. Okay, so, <laughs> so Belfont was founded in 1795 and was then and still known today for its Victorian architecture. This whole area up there is known as Happy Valley. And it was originally, though, Belfont named after the spring that used to supply the water to the town, the La Belfont, which they just cut off the law. So now it's just Belfont. Though some okay. people will say Belafonte. It's not Belafonte. It's Belafonte. <laughs> Let's not. That's too fancy for us here in Pennsylvania. It's just Belfont. So on March 24th, 1993, a late snowstorm had hit the area and a man was driving along one of the rural roads off of Interstate 80 and he noticed something along the side of the road that caught his attention. So he pulled over. Now, immediately the driver contacted the Pennsylvania State Police who descended upon the area to look at this man's discovery. And what they found was a young blonde female found discarded on a snowbank with her hands tied together with a yellow knot nylon rope that had also been tied around her neck and had a granny style knot in it. Now, police felt at the time that she was either a teenager or a young college student based upon her physical appearance. And hello, State College is right next door, Penn State University. So they also felt that she had been thrown from a position that was higher than that of a car, perhaps from the cab of a tractor trailer, as she had sunk six feet into the snowbank. Now, dual tire tracks were found at the scene, which would cement their theory, and plastic casts would be taken and sent to the Pennsylvania Crime Lab for analysis. Now, at the scene, the county coroner determined that she had died sometime before she was dumped, and she was found only wearing socks, underwear, and a sweater. There was no other identifying information found, such as a purse or an ID. So also called to the scene at the time was Center County District Attorney Ray Grykar, and we'll be talking about him a little later on. But his observations at the time was that she looked to be just disposed of haphazardly like a piece of trash. Now, Pennsylvania State Trooper Madden would take the lead on this case, and this would be the first murder in Belfont in over 13 years. So troopers would search the area to see if they could find any additional evidence to help identifying the victim. And they would even span out into Penn State University's campus 
but nothing would turn up. So the victim's body was transported to nearby Lehigh Hospital in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and the coroner there would determine that the victim had died by strangulation, as there were no other wounds found. So her time of death was based upon her core body temperature, and it was determined to be less than 12 hours from the time she was found. And it was also determined that she had had sex sometime before she died. Now, they didn't know whether this sex had been consensual or not, but based upon the fact that she was found murdered, they went with the fact that she had been raped. So the rope was removed from around her neck carefully, and under the knot, the coroner found a single piece of black hair, and it did not match the victim. The hair and the knotted rope were sent off to the FBI crime lab in Washington, D.C. On the victim's left palm, the coroner found some faded writing that had been written there in ink, but it was very difficult to read. So the skin was removed from her left hand. That's so that- gross. Like, I saw that in the notes and I'm like, oh my God, like, how do you send that? Do you put it in like Tupperware and just like... I'm sure, yeah. You would put it in, yeah, you would put it in like a Tupperware container with some fluid to keep it some moist. alcohol. Yeah, some alcohol or something. I don't know, something to preserve it and ship it off to the some crime lab. Hand delivers a piece of skin. Yeah. Delightful. It is, well, I guess that's one of the, the perks of your job right, when you're right. there. But she, so it was removed. It was sent off to the FBI crime lab to see if they could enhance the writing to determine what had been written. So fingerprints were also taken. They were run through the APHIS system and also national databases for missing persons, but nothing turned up. They also looked through national and state databases for descriptions of just her appearance. So they were looking for other people that were already reported missing to see, okay, does she match any of these people? And again, unfortunately, no. X-rays were also taken in hopes that if a match was made, that they would also have another identifying tool to cement her identity. What kind of x-rays are you looking for in that? Well, I think they're looking for broken bones or did she have any surgeries, any, yeah, something like that, that they could match with someone. So due to the amount of bruising and contusions that she had suffered, she was sent to a mortician to see if they could help restore her face to make her look more lifelike. So the mortician, I believe, was back in Belfont and he didn't like the name Jane Doe. So he decided to name her Spring Dawn. After the area she was found in, Spring Township, and the time of day at dawn. That's so fun. so like I was picturing this as like like so ninety three ish. So like I'm picturing mm-hmm. small town woman with like gigantic fluffy hair. I don't know. Like oh, yeah. I imagine her being like a big old smoker, like the mortician. And then you're like, oh, it's a dude. Oh, this changes my whole interpretation of now, the this situation. Was, yeah, this was a guy. This was a male mortician. <laughs> yeah, interesting. I had interesting. a male mortician in my town growing up. I mean, yeah, I know. I guess I was picturing more of like like the makeup person. Oh, the makeup, yeah. the makeup person being um, right, being more female than male. Yeah, yeah I, get I guess that. I stereotype that a little bit. Okay, a fun job there. Well, I'm not, I guess if you like doing that sort of thing, <laughs> God love you. Right. Be like a new Netflix reality series. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Have they had one on like people that run funeral parlors? Maybe. I don't know. I'm sure there's. I went to school with a girl whose family owned a funeral parlor. Yeah, and then yeah. she later became a mortician. Yeah, like she followed in the family business. Family business. Yeah. Because you're never going to be without a job. That's true. Anyways, he decided to name her Spring Dawn again after the where area she was found and the time of day. And then pictures were taken and distributed to area newspapers to see if they could help identify her. Investigators also took the victim's photos to area truck stops to show around. And some truckers were able to give investigators some names and additional tips had come through from photos run in the newspapers, but unfortunately none of that panned out. So in late April, the FBI lab got in touch with Trooper Madden, notifying him that the writing on the victim's hand was a phone number with a Florida area code. So when Trooper Madden tried the number, he found it to be disconnected. That is when Trooper Madden felt that maybe the number wasn't from Florida based upon the victim's appearance. She, again, a young blonde girl, 
but no tan. She wasn't coming back from spring break, picked up some numbers there. Right. (laughs) Or from Florida herself. Right, right. So investigators felt that she might have been from an area that had taken no more than 12 hours to get to from Belfont. So they felt maybe she was either from the north or west of Pennsylvania, not necessarily south, which I thought when I read that, I'm like, wow, so that's really good detective work. Yeah. Because I wouldn't have thought that. Yeah. So that's the experience you get with a good detective. Well, and I know like the the highways in this area and that, you know, in that area too are like, there's lots of drug trafficking and things because it's it's such an interesting. Well, we have Interstate 80 that cuts across the state. Then we have 95. We have 80. And 15 takes you to Florida. Yeah. Like we're close to New York City. Like there's, right. yeah. It is known as a drug corridor. It is. It is. Yes. It is. So investigators also discovered that she didn't have just one number written on her left palm, but two. So they got out. This is just some old fashioned stuff. And keep in mind, this was early 90s. We didn't really have the technology we do today. They broke sure. out an old fashioned map, That's put the center point is Belfont, did a circumference, like figuring out like 12 hours, how many miles that is. And they went to AAA to get the triptych. That's right. <laughs> and then investigators sent off the photos, sent off the phone numbers, sent off everything they had regarding this case to local police departments and all the cities in the areas from where they felt maybe that second number was from because they weren't quite sure. So meanwhile, back in Belfont, there was an outpouring of support for Spring Dawn and florists, clergy, clothing stores, as well as a cemetery and a monument company all wanted to donate to her funeral. A month after she was found, plans were made to bury her since they really couldn't preserve her body for much longer. But investigators were a little reluctant because they're like, oh, because once she's interned, you know, that's difficult. You know, you don't want to dig a body back up. And so it was right before she was buried, police received notification from a sheriff office from Maine that had been sent her information. And the sheriff from that town, you know, saw the numbers and he decided to call one of the numbers. He just kind of took a guess. I don't know if they had the area code necessarily, but he ended up calling the number and it ended up being a local guidance counselor named Mark Rosenberg. This counselor and his wife were able to identify the victim as, get this, Dawn Marie Beer bomb. That's so creepy. How is that weird? No, like, like he names her Bring Dawn, and her name's Dawn. And it's not like Dawn's a super common name. It's not like it was like Katie or something right. of, of Laura, it. Sarah, right? Something yeah. of that the era there. Yeah, no. that's creepy. That's I don't know. It's freaky. Maybe like Whoopi Goldberg ghost kind of stuff. Like I don't know. Sure, why not? We'll go with that. Maybe, I like that maybe. movie. <laughs> maybe you, get you and Danger more, Girl, Mortician, <laughs> Mortician's intuition. I don't know. So they were able to identify her, and Mark was a counselor at the Elon School for At Risk Youth that Dawn had attended. Now investigators discovered that Mark was one of the last people that Dawn had talked to before she died. She had called him from a payphone a few days before she was found murdered. Mark had given Dawn his home number, and that's what she wrote down on her hand as the operator was telling Dawn that she needed to add more money to the payphone in order to continue the call. So for our younger listeners, back in the day, you needed a lot of change to make phone calls from payphones or they just cut you off. So she said she had told Mark that she was safe and that she would call him back later that evening. But she never did. So Don Beerbaum was originally from Indiana, the state of Indiana, not Indiana, Pennsylvania, because we also have one of them. Right. That's right. So she was from the state of Indiana. And she had been in and out of foster care since her parents' divorce. And she also had a history of running away a dozen times or more. So Don had been sent to the boarding school in Maine. That is where she had met Mark Rosenberg, who was the guidance counselor. So this was an at-risk boarding school. And that's so far away from Indiana, too. Well, yeah, probably so they knew maybe she wouldn't run. 
fun because it was so far away. You don't Yikes. know anybody. Okay, that's true. So the boarding school was contacted by the Pennsylvania State Police to request any identifying records, and they sent down her dental records, which the coroner was able to make a positive ID. So Dawn Spring was, in fact... Don Beerbaum. The FBI now entered the case as Don had last been seen in Maine a few days before her death, but was found in Pennsylvania. So the FBI was looking at this as like an interstate abduction. So the Maine State Police had begun interviewing friends and acquaintances of Don. So one friend named Heidi was interviewed and she told authorities that Don had been looking for a truck driver to hitch a ride with. Now, this was not the first time Dawn had done something like this. The year before, Dawn and another friend had gotten a trucker to take them to her friend's house in Georgia. That, I mean, it's resourceful, but oh, man. Oh, but not safe. No, no. So once they dropped the friend off in Georgia, Dawn continued along with the truck driver, and their relationship turned from traveling companions to more of a romantic one. So the truck driver, his name was John Hoffpower, and he was from Amory, Mississippi. So just continued to travel with John along his trucking routes. And he had even stopped and introduced her to his grandmother, who was the most important person in his life. What do you think his grandma thought? Like how I'm like, I, I don't know. I'm picturing an old man. I'm, I'm oh, sure I it's not like an old man, old. but like, he, I think he was in his 20s. I guess that's maybe but granted. Better, she's but... like 16, 17 yeah, at this time. Yeah, so like, still a little sketch. Yeah. Plus, she's a runaway. But irregardless, they did travel together and they had a romantic relationship. So about a month after they started out, John's truck was pulled over in a random traffic stop. And Dawn supplied the police with her driver's license and they ran it and they discovered that there's a missing persons report out on Dawn and she was taken into custody. Like the boarding school had put out this missing persons report. Good for them for being on it. Yeah. So Dawn was returned to the boarding school and for a while it did look like Dawn was back on track and she was actually due to graduate in a few months. So they thought, okay, things have calmed down. Things are good. John Hoffpower hadn't given up on their relationship and he even tried to visit Dawn at her school, but they wouldn't let him beyond the gates. They stopped him there. Pulling up in your semi truck. (laughs) I'm here to see Dawn. You're seeing my lady. Oh, they're like, yeah, no, no. So he was turned away. But Dawn didn't know this. She didn't even know he had shown up because she was still equally enamored with him. And she decided that she was going to run away again and try to find him. On Sunday, March 21st, 1993, Dawn had snuck out of a movie theater in Poland Springs, Maine, telling her friends she was going to go to the truck stop in Bangor to see if she could find John. So John Hoffpower then became the prime suspect in Dawn's murder. Investigators then worked on tracking him down. They discovered that he had a home in Mississippi, but when investigators arrived, they only found his grandmother there. Now, John's grandmother told investigators that she had raised John as like he was her own son, and he was very devoted to her, like he would call her on the regular. But that was until September 1992. This was a half year before Dawn's murder. John had stopped calling his grandmother, and he'd even stopped working. He had left his wallet behind and his pets, and he just seemed to disappear. So police worked on tracking down John, like, okay, where did he go? Yeah. And they were able to find his car, which they found riddled with bullets. And this was only a few miles away from his home. And investigators theorized that John had met a violent end and was most likely killed in September of 1992. What was he involved in? My goodness. Well, that's drugs, like, maybe. Yeah. Don't forget, we were just talking about a drug corridor. Oh, that's true. Yeah. That's true. So it could have been something like that. 
that, something violent. So, of course, there goes their lead. So investigators returned to the truck stop in Bangor, Maine, and this was about two months later, and they wanted to talk to some employees there to see if they remembered Dawn. Again, she kind of stood out. She was young, she was attractive, she was a white blonde female, and so some of the employees did remember her. And one of the employees, a cashier, remembered that she had used one of the phones in the phone bank that was right inside the truck stop door, and it was located only about 15 feet from the cash register. And the FBI agents then obtained a grand jury subpoena for the phone records from all the payphones. They wanted all of them. And agents wanted to find out who else Dawn might have talked to to help generate some leads in this case that really had a lot of dead Mm. ends. So they found that Dawn's last phone call had been to a friend that she had hitched the ride with initially when they met John Hoffpower. So she told police that Dawn was disappointed that she couldn't find John and that she was afraid to return to her home state of Indiana because her mom, you know, she didn't want to deal with her mom and she didn't really want to return to the boarding school. She also told her friend that she had gotten a ride from a friendly trucker at the truck stop. So when she had left Poland Springs, she had gotten a ride and he had given her some money even for some food because she just kind of took off. This wasn't well planned like to have money or anything like that. So the FBI decided to look at all the gas receipts from the four day period around the time Dawn used the phones to see if they could narrow down who she might have gotten a ride with. And these are like, and this is 93, so that's not like we're pulling them up online. Like you probably right. have like your stapled receipts yes. like in your in your filing. Yes. That's a lot of work. That is a lot of work. <laughs> so not only did they pull the receipts from the Bangor truck stop, yeah. they came back down to Pennsylvania and got the gas receipts from three area truck stops around Belfont to see if any of them would match. And now the distance between Bangor and Belfont is approximately 650 miles. So they knew it was a long shot because apparently tractor trailer gas tanks, the truck gas tanks, yeah. hold a lot of gas. So that easily could make 650 miles and not fill up. For but sure. they thought, let's try this. Let's see if it works. Oh my goodness. So after compiling a list of several hundred thousand names between the Bangor truck stop and the three truck stops in PA where Don's body had been dumped, only one name would come up as a match. And that name, James Robert Cruz Jr. So on March 22nd, he had bought gas in Bangor, Maine that morning that Don had made the calls, again, just a few feet away from the cashier. And on March 24th, he had bought gas again in Milesburg, Pennsylvania truck stop a few hours before Don's body was discovered. So investigators discovered that Cruz worked for a trucking company out of New Waterford, Ohio, and it was verified that he had been driving truck number 44 on a route near the crime scene. Although Cruz had an exemplary work record, investigators found that his personal life was not so exemplary. So his criminal record showed that when Cruz was in the military, he was convicted of murder. He had strangled someone to death. Oh, fun. He's kind of going to the top of this list. That's like, and, and that's not like, I don't know. You have to really commit to that. You yeah. can't just be like, I don't know, pulling a trigger is easy relatively compared to... Holding. Strangling somebody? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll talk about that because that comes up in his trial. <laughs> he ended up serving time in Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary. They also discovered from his military records that his blood type was A positive, which I don't think is a very common blood type. Like, I know O I'm positive. positive. Are you A positive? I am. I am. You're rare then. I'm O positive. <laughs> Are you a donor or I'm a donor, donor receiver? I'm a universal okay. donor. Okay, okay. So this seminal fluid, because of his blood type being a positive, they were
were able to match the seminal fluid that had been recovered from inside Dawn. Now, this was not a concrete match, only that it narrowed down the suspect pool. So now the FBI agents secured the molding from the tires of the truck Cruz had been driving at the time of Dawn's murder. Now, Cruz at this time had no idea the FBI were even looking for him as he was out on another job. So they found that the tires on truck number 44 were XD1 Michelin low profile tires. And apparently this was an unusual brand. So the tire casts were used to match the truck tires and a match was made. So investigators had enough to secure a search warrant for a closer look at the truck and to obtain blood and hair samples from Cruz. So now they have the gas receipts that match, they have the tire match, they have the in-the-realm blood type match with the seminal fluid. So investigators were not hopeful, though, that they would find anything from the truck, as it had been over two months since Dawn had been inside that truck, and it was, like, exceptionally clean. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. So a thorough search did take most of the day, and it didn't turn much up of anything. And it was right near the end of the day when they were getting ready to wrap up that one of the FBI agents noticed that there was some carpeting on the bottom side of the passenger door. I guess decorative carpeting, right, I right. guess you would say there. <laughs> Anyways, they found one lone blonde hair right at the bottom. So they like had that magic. Like seriously, they should make a movie out of this. Like the Dawn's lineup, the single hair. Like that is true. Man. So it wasn't an FBI. I think it was an FBI. The FBI files case did an episode. On oh, this. Okay. so that's a link in our show notes that you can watch this case. So the hair was sent off to the FBI lab for analysis. Now, when Cruz returned, he was questioned, but he was just questioned as the FBI related it to him as something like, hey, we're just talking to area truck drivers as we're looking for a missing runaway and we're just speaking to a lot of you. Would you be willing to talk to us? And Cruz was like, sure. So investigators say, hey, can we look at your travel logs, which all truckers have to keep? So Cruz admitted after they're looking at his logs and they're looking him over that he admitted that he had falsified some of his logs. So those are the logs that say this is how much I drove. This is how much I rested because there are certain parameters you can only drive so long till you have to rest. Yeah. And you can get pulled over, I think, on just a side note, like they can get pulled over anytime to get those yes. logs checked mm-hmm. by state police. Yeah, just like a spot check. Yeah, yeah. So he admitted that, you know, I had falsified some of my logs and those logs that centered around specifically the truck stops in Maine and Pennsylvania when he got gas. So now a cruise first denied that he'd gotten gas in Milesburg, Pennsylvania. But when confronted with his signed gas receipt, like, really? Because isn't this yeah. your signature? He said he only got gas because they were giving away free showers at the truck stop. And, and that's a thing, too? I think back then. Oh, my. Yeah. Well, think about it. They don't have showers yeah, in their truck. And some true. are long-haul truckers. That's like, true. those truck stops, I think, have things like that. Interesting. I'm, yeah. just, I'm, I'm learning so much right now. Look at that. You could, you <laughs> could head down open. to Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which is a big <laughs> trucking hub if you want, and you maybe walk into some of those pilot ones. So Cruz denied ever having seen Dawn or even talking to her. He, of course, did not admit to raping or murdering Dawn, and he stayed calm and friendly throughout his interview. Now, FBI profilers would tell investigators that when a suspect remains eerily calm under intense questioning, that can often be a sign of guilt. I'm not sure how, but I'm going to go with what the FBI profilers say. I would be so awkward in that. I'd be like, you know, like, what do I do with my hands? What do I do with my hands? But yeah, but if you're innocent (laughs) and you're being intensely questioned by the FBI, yeah, you're sweating. You're like, no, no, I know. But he was like very calm, very like, no, you know, kind of thing. So that kind of is the. the, That's a nice way to say he just had a creepy vibe. Like, yeah, that's okay. (laughs) FBI profilers creepy vibe. Right. (laughs) So investigators also discovered that eight other women who worked as area prostitutes at Ohio truck stops had been murdered. And these women all had similar features to Dawn's murder. So a task force was convened to solve these unknown rape murders in the area, but was disbanded when no solid evidence could be found 
that especially matched Cruz to these murders. Now, investigators still felt Cruz had been responsible for those Ohio murders. Now, meanwhile, the DNA on the hair found on the passenger side door would match Dawn. A search warrant was obtained for Cruz's blood to compare it to the semen sample. And on September 6, 1993, the results would show a 660 million to one match. (laughs) That's a, that's a good... That's a good match. That's a good chance. That's a good match. So on September 8th, 1993, five months after Don's body was discovered, James Cruz was placed under arrest on a federal arrest warrant. Now, Cruz was placed under arrest at his employment as he had just returned from another trip. So he pulls into the lot and there, bam, they arrest him right there. At his arrest, his calm-friendly demeanor dropped and he became very angry towards investigators. So Cruz was 36 at the time of his arrest and he was charged with murder in the first degree, second degree, third degree. He was charged with kidnapping, rape, involuntary deviant sexual intercourse, which is sodomy, robbery, and theft by unlawful taking. On September 10th, Cruz had a bond hearing in Ohio's Akron Municipal Court, and it was set at $5 million. He stayed in jail. Yeah, I think so. He didn't get out. (laughs) So at the time, this was the highest amount ever set in Summit County, Ohio. So interestingly enough, right after Cruz's arrest, prostitute murders along Northeastern's Ohio highways stopped. Isn't that a coincidence? Isn't that amazing? (laughs) Hmm. So, Center County District Attorney Ray Greikar prosecuted Cruz's case, and Cruz had been appointed a court-appointed defense attorney. Now, the story that the prosecution laid out was from the time Don had hitched the ride with Cruz in Bangor, Maine, truck stop, believing he was headed to Georgia, because that was her original destination. So, late on March 23rd, investigators believed that Cruz had raped and strangled Don in the compartment carrier of his truck. Now, after buying gas, he disconnected his cab from the travel trailer and drove off looking for a dump site. In the early morning hours of March 24th, he pulled off a highway entrance ramp and pushed Don's body out of his truck. Now, one of the most memorable moments at Cruz's trial was when D.A. Greikar, in his closing arguments, used a rope wrapped around a a prop to simulate someone's neck for four minutes, showing just how long strangling someone to death takes. And this is what the amount of time the coroner testified to, that it takes four minutes. That's an awful long time. Like you said, yeah, that's one thing to shoot someone, one thing to stab someone, but to really strangle the life out of someone takes time. And commitment. And commitment. (laughs) When I read that, it took me back to, if any of you have watched on Netflix, the Chris Watts, I think it's called American Murder. It's a little documentary on the murders of Shanann Watts and her two children. Oh yeah, definitely not. That hits that hits a lot of my boxes. Right I knew there. you wouldn't watch that. But for <laughs> any of our listeners, what's interesting about that documentary is it's all the body cam footage from police. It's her Facebook messages and videos. It's other videos taken. It really just pieces it all together. But one of the things that struck out to me in this documentary was he talks about, and it's his interrogation tapes too, he's talking about how how long it took from when he put the girls in the back of his car and they were alive and he drove 50 40 minutes 50 minutes out of town to where he eventually strangled them and I thought my god you had 40 to 50 minutes to change your mind not yeah not only the time then it took to strangle them right like, it just I was like mm. yeah you gotta like I don't know. I feel like even when, you know, we're all told to like take a step back and count to 10 to right. calm your body down. You've you had like an hour. 40 minute yeah. ride, 40, yeah. 50 minute ride. You could have been like, I can't do that. Yeah. But he did. So he's where he needs to be for the rest of his life. But anyways, it, when I was researching this and I and he said it took four minutes to do that, I was like, well, tack on another 40 to 50 on that when you drive the person yeah. to where they're going. But Ooh. that, yeah. 
unsettling. So Cruz did not testify on his own behalf. And on June 14, 1994, the jury, after 14 hours of deliberation, came back with a guilty verdict, first-degree murder, and a misdemeanor theft. He was acquitted of kidnapping, rape, involuntary deviant sexual intercourse, and robbery. So, like, she wanted to go with him. Was well, like, maybe yeah. this is consensual. We can't They prove didn't it's not. know necessarily because of the rape and the sodomy. I'm like, okay, but she was murdered. I'm not really right, sure if that's right. consensual, but okay. I mean, her underwear was back on, so <laughs> kind of redressed her, but right. still, that doesn't, I get it. I get why the jury could only go with those other two. So the judge sentenced Cruz to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So he's been sitting in prison and trying to appeal his case, which have mostly been denied. But on April 20th, 2015, the FBI issued a press release that stated that testimony by FBI analysts regarding microscopic hair analysis was erroneous. And which which hair was this? Was this the black hair or was this the blonde hair? I believe it was the blonde hair, but they're talking in general for all the cases that the FBI had, an analyst had sat on the stand and testified to microscopic hair analysis. So five months later, Cruz received a letter from the FBI, which told him that the testimony by FBI agent Blunt at his trial had given erroneous statements. Now, erroneous meaning that the statements were outside the limits of science at the time and were therefore invalid. So Cruz immediately jumped on that and appealed on the grounds of newly discovered facts. The Superior Court of Pennsylvania ordered further proceedings reversing a lower court's dismissal of Cruz's appeal. So as of October 1st, 2020, just a little over a month ago, a Center County judge was looking into Cruz's appeal for a new trial. Well, and that, um, I was looking into that too out of curiosity. And there's like this fruit of our, fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine right. or something. So yes. then like his blood work obtained afterwards is that still I'm not sure how that all fell in place but it could yeah, if he was compelled by that with, with the circumstantial evidence whole right were they able else? to get the warrant yeah would, would they have gotten the warrant they got to get that information yeah so I'm not sure how that all kind of broke down but a center county prosecutors at the time filed their own appeal stating that there was other evidence used to convict Cruz that was outside of the hair analysis but the hair analysis is one if it was the blonde hair on the truck door it placed Dawn in the truck. Yeah. So if you can't place Dawn in the truck, does that negate all the other evidence? I don't know. So right now, Cruz's appeal is still working its way through the Pennsylvania court system. I mean, and circumstantially, like you've got a lot of information there that kind of like the truck or the tire marks and right. the, everything else kind of places him there. So. Right. And, and let's not forget his semen does match the semen right. in her and right, she right, right. dead. So, but was that was that given after the hair was found too? Well, they knew the semen was in the realm because of his military record being a oh, positive. Okay. Well, that's good. That's so, good. but the tire tracks, that's when the falsified logs that he admitted to, yeah. putting him in that area, the fact that the logs match Banker Main and the truck stop. I mean, that's a lot of coincidence. So even if he's clear, like even if this is dismissed, he's probably never going to get out of jail because of all those other things. Never say never, but I hope not. And he's like in his, what, seven? He's got to be close to 70. Yeah, he's up there because he got convicted when he was 36, 37. So if Cruz does get a new trial, one of the difficulties is that the original investigators have all passed away. And the DA who prosecuted the case, well, he just up and disappeared. Uh Uh-oh. Here we go. So (laughs) Ray Greikar was the DA at the time. So 
He was just eight months away from retiring after a 35-year career when he was last seen and heard of on April 15, 2005. At that time, he had called his live-in girlfriend, Patty Forncola, around 11.30 a.m. that he was going to play hooky for the day, and he was just going to go driving and antiquing. Apparently, he liked to antique. So he told her he'd been driving down Route 192, which cell phone records would later confirm, and he also told her that he wouldn't be back until later, so he wouldn't be able to feed or walk their dog, Honey. So around 11.30 p.m. that night, when Ray had yet to return, Cammie, he's not calling her, she Mm. can't reach him, she decides to call the police. So Police Chief Dwayne Dixon was contacted once the call came in and notified surrounding police departments to be on the lookout for Grycar's red Mini Cooper. By the next day, Pennsylvania State Police joined the search using helicopters to search the vast rural roads in the area around Belfont and nearby Lewisburg. So the typical 24-hour wait period for missing persons report was kind of bypassed because this is a sitting district attorney because of his position. Yeah, and 35 years worth of prosecutions. Yeah, Yeah, a lot of suspects. So at 5 p.m. on Saturday, Grycar's Mini Cooper was found outside the Street of Shops, an antique store in Lewisburg. And this was about 55 miles from from his home. His cell phone, which was turned off, was found inside the locked car. However, his keys and wallet were not found inside the car. Grycar's car was transported to the nearby police barracks where technicians found cigarette ash on the passenger side floor mat. Now, Grycar didn't smoke and he was said to be very intolerant of anyone who did. So the fact is, was somebody kind of leaning into his car smoking? Was someone sitting inside of his car smoking? Because people that knew him said, oh yeah, he wouldn't have tolerated that. But nothing else was found that was suspicious. There was no blood, there was no scuff marks, there was no, nothing was torn or ripped, nothing. So police looked for any activity on Grycar's bank accounts or credit cards, and nothing has turned up. What added to the mystery was that Grycar's county-issued laptop was also missing. He was last seen with it on Thursday, the day before he disappeared. Now, police were contacted by Grycar's nephew, who told him that the car parked by the... So these shops in Lewisburg, the antique shops, Mm -hmm. are right next to the Susquehanna River. Okay. So Grycar's nephew told them the car parked by the fast-moving river and near a bridge was a very familiar scene to the family, as Grycar's older brother Ray committed suicide in 1996, and he had left his car parked beside the Great Miami River in Dayton, Ohio. He had apparently jumped from the bridge, and his body was recovered a few days later. So when his nephew sees the car parked by the river right. right near the bridge he's like oh my gosh this is way too familiar yeah. way too similar was that was that like a publicly shared I think later on so the information prompted police to begin search the river now there are some who knew Greg Hart that he never believed his brother committed suicide because he just didn't feel his older brother would have done that to young children so Greg Hart had talked on occasion I don't think very openly but had talked to a few people that sure. He just didn't feel his brother had committed suicide, that he felt it was something more nefarious. So police even contacted psychiatric units across Pennsylvania just in case he might have shown up there, like and admitted himself into an inpatient setting. But he didn't. So if Grycar jumped or was pushed into the river, his body might not ever be found. So water levels at the time of Grycar's disappearance was about 11 and a half feet. And then where he would have jumped, there is an inflatable fiber dam that wasn't usually in place at that time Mm -hmm. of year, but it was at that time. So if he 
did end up in the water, the dams would have ended up chewing his body up. And then eventually the river leads out into the Chesapeake Bay and then out into sea with the Susquehanna River. I don't know if you knew this. So this little knowledge for you. So they used to mine in certain places the Susquehanna River. For what? Like coal. You know, yeah. So they used to mine. are from like Mount Carmel area, yeah. coal miners. Yeah, yeah. My grandfather had told me this once. So there are pockets because of the digging. There are pockets in the river that basically can just suck a body down in there and hold it. In this area, you'll hear of some people a couple times a year that drown in the Susquehanna. And that is because they think they get sucked down into these pockets. And then eventually it may release it later down. But yeah. So in July 2005, Grycar's laptop would be found in the water under Route 45 bridge between Lewisburg and Milton. Its hard drive had been deliberately removed and was found two months later upstream. You think you'd want to like smash it or something too. Like you're leaving kind of clues there. I know you're putting right, it in the but water, that's if but... he did it. Oh, that's true. That, that's, that's if true. he did. That's what makes this such a mystery. So police would discover that Grycar had purchased software to wipe his hard drives clean, and they did a search of his home computer, which showed searches on how to destroy a hard drive. So their thinking was, okay, he bought this software. He's looking how to do this. That he might have done it that day himself, but they weren't sure. So they were hopeful that information could be recovered from the submerged hard drive. And they took it to a company that had recovered data from the Space Shuttle Columbia disaster. It's called Kroll On Track is the name of the company. Yeah. Even though they were able to recover stuff, they weren't in this case. (laughs) They they couldn't do it because they said that basically, I guess, the grit and the grime because it was so yeah. submerged in water for so long and all the debris on the bottom had just really just uh-huh. destroyed it. So another piece of evidence was discovered from questioning witnesses on the day of Grycar's disappearance. And that was that he was seen with a mystery woman. And it was never disclosed exactly who this woman is. Hmm. So we still don't know. So in the years that have passed, Grycar nor his body have ever surfaced. But theories certainly abound by disappearances here in Pennsylvania. Now, some believe that Grycar is alive and hiding out either on his own or in the witness protection protection program. Don't forget he was a DA. That's true. That's true. So searches continued as far as even the country of Slovenia, which was his ancestral home that he had gone to visit twice. So they were looking at his travel records and they were just kind of like, where would he be gone? So the walk away theory doesn't really rank high as Grycar left a small fortune in his county pension and he left behind his daughter, Laura, who he was very close to. Yeah. That doesn't really make sense. Just the walking away without letting her know. Right. Or like even me like, I took some money out. It's under a rock somewhere. Right. Yeah, like something something like that. If you're going to walk away, maybe you plan the walk away. Right. Or like leave some breadcrumbs or something. So another theory dealt with Grycar's involvement in prosecuting a large heroin ring operating out of Center County. Now, nothing linked those involved in the heroin operation to Grycar's disappearance. So they looked into that also. Yet another theory was that Grycar vanishing act was somehow linked to the Jerry Sandusky scandal that rocked Happy Valley in 2011. Dark huh. days. <laughs> Dark yeah. days. Right. So in 1998, Grycar had refused to prosecute Jerry Sandusky, who is very well known for those that aren't involved in, in live Penn State football. Jerry Sandusky was a defensive coordinator under Joe Paterno, and they had won like national championships. Championships, and so he was very beloved in the area. So when he refused to prosecute, a victim had come forward with allegations against Sandusky. And Sandusky at the time, though he was no longer the defensive coordinator at Penn State, he had since retired from that. He had founded the Second Mile Foundation, which was a program for at-risk youth. 
Yeah. And pretty big fundraising. I, I remember just in even down here in central Pennsylvania. That yeah, it's a familiar Southern Pennsylvania. Yeah. yeah, it was a very well known foundation. So he said he didn't prosecute at the time because he felt that there was a lack of evidence. So some believe that Grycar was looking into a cover up by others to hide Sandusky's prolific molestation of young boys through his foundation. But again, nothing has linked Grycar's disappearance to the Sandusky case. This is just a theory. Yeah, kind of thrown out. I think it's Sandusky's trial, there were 11 victims that testified. I think there were oh 11, 10 or 11 victims that testified. And they were all young boys who yeah. were molested by yeah. Jerry Sandusky, who is now sitting in prison. So in 2013, another theory surfaced that theorized Grycar was kidnapped and murdered due to his prosecution of a member of the Hells Angels Motorcycle Club. So we have a lot of theories. There's so many. There's so many be. theories, but nobody knows anything. But in July 2011, Laura Grycar had her father declared legally dead. In his case, is still open, though, as a missing persons investigation. You know, every couple of years we get those in the newspapers. They'll yeah. do the anniversary and they'll bring up the evidence. And But nothing, as far as I know, has Man. panned out to know what happened to Ray Grycar, nor has his body been found. I feel like if we're looking at receipts for some random girl from Maine and we're looking at hundreds of thousands of receipts, seats. I feel like the DA might have had a little extra boost here. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, you think they would be, right, break like, out all the stops, but yeah, so hmm. far he has just simply disappeared. Interesting. I know, right? Had huh. nothing to do with the first case we talked about, but I thought it was an interesting connection. It, it is, yeah. and, and you can't utilize him anymore because he's no, no longer he's a resource. Gone. Yeah. Right, so if Cruz gets another trial, pretty much the people in the original trial are all gone. Yeah, for mo- most part. Yeah, so there we go everybody, and if you have any suggestions or theories about anything we talked about, please feel free to reach out. You can reach out to us through our website, criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. On there, you will find all of our show notes and resources and a contact page. You can also reach out to us through Instagram. We have an Insta, Criminal Disc Pod, and a Facebook page by the same name, Criminal Discourse Podcast, and a YouTube channel. No way. Yeah. I didn't even know about that one. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, It's little video snippets that tech support puts out. So. Yeah, you can listen to them. And his new, um, some of the new advertisement of our sneak peeks have our bit emojis on it. So, I did see that in one of them. Yeah, yeah, I like it. I like it. So you can check out any of them. Again, if you have any theories or even case suggestions or questions for us, please feel free to reach out. And we would only ask that whatever platform you listen to us on, and we're pretty much on every platform, I think now, if you could give us a review, that would be great. Five stars, even better. <laughs> Greatly appreciated. All right. So as I always in the episode, if you see something, say something, you might have that mystery piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime like the cashier at the Bangor main truck stop that remembered Dawn and said yeah you know she was over there I remember using the phone so that got him to think let's get let's get the gas receipts yeah what kind of started that off what's your what's your uh your tip your life lesson here do we have one? Uh, I'm gosh, sorry, I, I haven't done a spot there. You did put me in the spot. I haven't <laughs> done one. I think in this case, you know, hitchhiking is a very dangerous thing to do. I would say Even don't. Uber. I don't know. I don't trust U- Uber well, either. Uber and Lyft can be. Well, yeah. I mean, it's always kind of dangerous when you're hooking a ride from yeah, somebody. Yeah. So you need to be extra cautious and let people know. I mean, and granted, Dawn didn't have a cell phone That's and true. she was a runaway. So there's always risks there. But. I'd always wondered too, like, why didn't you change addresses? I mean, you knew where she was. Why didn't you send right. her a letter? 
Right. I had I had pen pals back then. Yeah. Like, like you would have got his grandmother's address. You can have sent him a letter right, from school. Right. I always wondered why they didn't do that part. But I had a pen pal in Australia. Like, come on. Do you still have them? No, not no. anymore. That kind of fizzled out in high school. You should probably reach reach a look on Facebook. She's probably out there somewhere. He probably is. We have <laughs> listeners in Australia. That's what true. was her what was her first name? Um Amber. Amber from Australia. From what part of Australia? Victoria, Australia. Okay, Amber from Victoria, Australia. <laughs> if you had a pen pal in the United States. <laughs> From the state of Pennsylvania? Yes, Emily from Pennsylvania. Emily from Pennsylvania. (laughs) Then go ahead and reach out. Oh, we could make a connection. That would be so cool. (laughs) So what would you say is a criminal discourse life tip? Gosh, I don't know. Um, It's very hard. It is is hard. It is hard. I would say just watch who you you go with yeah you, know, you really have to or let someone know even that friend like hey if you don't hear from me yeah like i don't know please like, tell someone point. Yeah. yeah i guess what did she have to lose though she kind of yeah i mean oh. she kind of was a lost soul yeah really sad hurts your heart a little bit yeah it does oh, all right wait to down sorry okay <laughs> So if you see something, say something. Yes. You might have that missing piece of puzzle it takes to solve a crime. And as always, as I say it every week, and I eventually can't wait till I don't have to say it, that we're still in this pandemic and we have to watch what we do. But let's look out for one another. Let's take care of ourselves. And we can do that by washing our hands and wearing our masks. But also, let's, you know, be kind to one another. Here in the United States, we are in very a bit of disarray with our elections coming up and just the craziness and the discontent that it's always nice when we can do small acts of kindness for one another so until next time guys bye you can say bye bye okay (laughs) 